Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Doxology. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage for tonight. Um, this evening, we'll be reading from Psalm 90, so I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, um, we do have Bibles in the back of the pew in front of you, as well as some in the lobby. Um, so if you don't own a Bible, we invite you to um, keep one of those as our gift to you. So once again, we'll be reading today from Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our lives are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is God's word. You for reading that, Betsy. Appreciate it. Good evening, everybody. I am Nate Wagner. I am one of the pastors at Portico Church Arlington. I know a lot of you, some new faces I do not know. So um, thank you all so much for welcoming me here to give Steve a little break and to continue on with preaching through some of the Psalms as you guys have been doing this summer. And Steve told me that the reason for um, spending some time in the Psalms is so that we don't just kind of ha like lollygag through the Christian life. And I think Steve put it, be secondhand Christians, but that we actually experience God. And the Psalms are really good at that because they take us through the various ups and downs of life and they lead us to um, look at things from a number of different perspectives and then offer our experience back to God in response. And so um, this evening we're going to be looking at Psalm 90, and I thought this would be a really good psalm for us to consider this evening because we are kind of in a point of transition that is really unique, right? We just got disrupted for about a year and a half with COVID, and things are kind of starting to be in this like awkward place of transition, where some things are starting to open up, some things aren't. You can do things you used to be able to do again now. And we are kind of grieving collectively as a society for a year and a half that has kind of been erased. Like last March, two marches ago now, happened, and it's like 
time kind of got put on pause. And a lot of things that we were pursuing got disrupted. A lot of accomplishments or achievements that we had got disrupted. And now things are starting to open back up. We have an excitement. We're kind of starting to approach our lives again with possibility and potential. And we're starting to think about how we can make up for lost time. What can we do to kind of get our lives back on track? And I think a lot of people are kind of doing this, but they're not actually thinking about it. They're just kind of going through the motions. They're following the same desires of their hearts, and they haven't allowed the last year and a half to help us reflect and help us to think about what was God doing with that year and a half? What was he trying to teach us? And so Psalm 90 is really, really relevant to us because it is written, it's a psalm of Moses. And it's one of the only, probably the only psalm written by Moses. And it also makes it one of the oldest psalms. And Moses wrote it when he was in the wilderness. And if you don't know this story, Moses is the leader of Israel. He is kind of God's mouthpiece to pull Israel out of Egypt and rescue them from Pharaoh. And then he leads them to Mount Sinai where the people immediately start rebelling against God. And so God tells Moses, he says, okay, yeah, this is great. Um, The people that you're leading have already left me. So go ahead, guys. I'll send an angel in front of you. You can go into the promised land, walk right in. You don't have to do anything. You can just be there, but I'm going to be here. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to stay in the wilderness. Go ahead. And Moses probably didn't think about it too much, but he was like, no, no, no. We're going to stay here with you, God. And the Israelites were with him. Forty years go by. They're still not in the land. Two million plus people wandering in circles in the wilderness, just dying, losing hope that they would ever enter the land and fulfill the inheritance and the promise that the Lord had promised all the way back to Abraham. This was the land set apart for them. And so you see this real um, kind of reflection in this psalm that Moses is doing. He's kind of saying, like, have I made a huge mistake? What did I do? And he walks through kind of things that he's learned along the way in the wilderness. And so this is kind of like Moses's wilderness wisdom that he leads us through. And the the whole process of this psalm is one of trying to find purpose, trying to find meaning, Why are we still out here in the wilderness? Why have so many people died? Why doesn't it seem like God is relenting? He's trying to make meaning. And so as we are trying to make things in our life make sense, and all of the little moments of our life, we're trying to make them matter again, we can look at the psalm and help help us, um, or it can instruct us in that. This is often... Uh, read at funerals, and so it shouldn't have surprised Steve that he gave me the whole Psalter, and I picked the funeral psalm <laughs> to, to preach through, but you've probably heard it before, but it cuts out, most people will cut out major chunks of it, and so you probably are very familiar with a few lines in it, but the whole psalm is probably a little more disruptive than maybe you have been familiar with. 
So let's go ahead and pray together, and then we will jump into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, um, that you know us. You have made us. As your word says, you are Lord from everlasting to everlasting. And yet, God, you have um, made yourself knowable through your word. And you haven't just made yourself knowable, but you've made yourself knowable in a way that speaks to our experience. And it speaks to all of the questions that are raised by living life in a fallen and broken world. And so, Lord, I ask that you would just clear our minds, that we would humble ourselves under your word this evening and allow you to speak to us in a way that interrupts patterns and changes and transforms Lord, and we need your spirit to help us do this, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first couple of verses are a very kind of, like, obvious place to start for a psalm, if you will. It's not going to sound super unique. You're going to hear a lot of psalms start like this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. And so you see in these first two verses that Moses is pointing to the unchangeable character of God. So he's saying, you have been our dwelling place, and that's nice, but the emphasis is really more so on from generation to generation. He has been with them in the wilderness for generations. Same God, different generations. So it sounds almost like Ecclesiastes. Generations come and generations go, but the Lord still is. And so you see this unchangeable element of who God is, and he's kind of framing the rest of the psalm in that. So he is intentionally drawing our attention to something transcendent, and then he's going to bring that down to help us make meaning of our lives and our experience. So God is both our security and our sovereign from eternity to eternity. He's everlasting. And then sharply contrasting that, verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight or but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And so our pursuit of meaning is immediately threatened by this bounded nature of time. We are bound to time. We are being returned to dust. God created us from dust, and to dust we are going to return. Our time on this earth is bound. It's limited. God everlasting, people limited, fading says, a thousand years in your sight is like one day. It's like yesterday when it's past. It's like a memory. It's like a watch in the night. It's like four hours. So a thousand of our years equals four God hours. And this is, of course, just metaphorical language. He's not saying this literally, but he's saying this to show us that for God, he is not bound by time as we are. And so when we are frustrated by what seems like God's impatience or his immovability or his refusal to act, 
we have to remember that he is outside of time. Time doesn't act on God. God dictates time and makes time move for his will and his purposes. So God is sovereign over time. To emphasize the point, he then says, you sweep them away as with a flood. Israelites probably would have a pretty good image for that with the flood sweeping away the Egyptians who were in pursuit of him, of them. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. This is grass. I have PTSD with grass because I tried to grow some a while ago and it didn't go well. And But it looks really good at first. So like it sprouts up and it's all green and really soft and fine. And then like the first little, you know, 90 degree day in northern Virginia just like torches it and it's all dead that. And this grass that he's talking about is actually even more fickle. It's grass that will kind of sprout up with the dew from the night, and then the same day will shrivel back. And so he's saying that we are like this. We are swept away as with a flood. We are like a dream. We are like this fading, fickle grass. So how does that help us? We are pursuing meaning with everything that we're doing. And now Moses is shoving us into this reality. He's like, yeah, it's not going to last. It's coming to an end. Nothing that you do is going to last. Moses was in a dark place, it seems. The years in the wilderness have worked on him. We have trouble believing this, I think, especially as we're kind of like younger and in the prime of our lives. We don't like to think about this very long. We will hit the eject button real quick and abort any thought that kind of challenges the fact that what we're building is going to be forgotten in a snap. But it's so important because it's true. There's no getting around it. Even the most successful people, their work turns to dust and goes to ashes. It is blown away by the wind. And so if we are trying to look for meaning, we have to reckon with the limit of time. We have to account for that. That's not the only thing we have to account for. Verse 7 introduces um, kind of the reason, the background information for why time is a factor. Verse 7 says, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So we are bound by time. We're also threatened by death. We are brought to an end by your anger. Verse 9 just cements this. We are, our years are brought to an end like a sigh. The last breath of life is how our years end. So we're threatened by death, and we're threatened by death for one reason. It's because we are also plagued with sin. 
So we know from Romans that the fruit of sin is death. And that happened in, in the very beginning, in the garden, Genesis 3, I'm sure you guys know this, in the very first rebellion against God, God told Adam, said, the day you eat of this, you will surely die. When you try to define good on your own terms, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve sinned, rebelled against God, brought death into this world, and now we are threatened by death, and we're plagued with our own sin. So the reason that time is a factor is because God is putting an end to our sinning by our death. This is harsh. And it's harsh because it has to be harsh to wake us up and to kind of jar our human pride. Because we don't like to think of ourselves as needing to be put to an end in order to relieve the earth of our wickedness. But that's exactly what we are. The earth needs relief from our wickedness. Why is God angry? Why does he have wrath for us? It's for one reason. He loves his creation. God's love and his wrath always go hand in hand. And so anything that is a threat to the thing that he loves, he hates. And ultimately, he destroys. And he doesn't destroy it because he is some kind of like petulant, um, juvenile God. It's always a redemptive destruction. He's always pouring out wrath to remake, to relieve, to recover the good that he made. And so Moses is in tune with this reality probably more than anything else in the psalm because there's debate about this. I've seen a number of 600,000. I've seen a a number of about 2.3 million people died in the wilderness during those 40 years. So Moses is the spiritual leader. He's doing funerals. That's basically all he's doing. Funeral after funeral after funeral. Death, death, death. And the people continue to rebel. They continue to harden themselves against God. The whole generation is hardened towards God. All of their days passing away under the wrath of God. The years of life, 70 or maybe even 80 by reason of strength, yet their span is toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So you see that question brought to kind of show the purpose that Moses is saying, is seeing in all of this death. It's to stop us and to help us consider what is happening here. (laughs) Why are so many people dying? The promise to Abraham was that you will be a great nation and your descendants will be without number. And so they got a good start, went to Egypt, had an even better kind of like initial growth in Egypt. Now in the wilderness, it's starting to go backwards. And so what is going on with the promises of God? He's trying to get the attention of Israel. He's trying to get them to remember what their purpose is, remember what their meaning is, and trying to get them to turn back 
So that's the question that Moses invites Israel into and invites us into, to consider the power of his anger. All death is at his hand. Your wrath according to the fear of you. So it's humbling. It's humbling. And so this first half of the psalm, we are kind of left hopeless. You know, and this is not a great psalm to preach like a motivational, like, make your life matter, right? Like, it's just not. They're, like, these enemies that we're up against are severe. Like, the, the fact that we're time-bound and that we're all going to die and that we've made God angry and that he sees us perfectly. Every single thought, action, word, done in secret or not, he sees and knows and is stirring his anger and his hatred of evil. And so the next half, how this psalm resolves, is really bizarre with this beginning because it's a prayer. And so Moses kind of goes to God in prayer, and he's asking all these questions of God. He's kind of laying out to God. He's saying, you are angry with us, clearly. We can't do what you want us to do because we won't turn. And so Moses has this ridiculous um, boldness in asking God now. He says, teach us to number our days. And so there's an audacity of God's people because Moses is remembering the promise. He's remembering the promise, and now he's attaching it to their experience. And Moses is connecting some dots here. He's saying, okay, so God wants us to number our days. He wants us to know that there's a limit to our time on earth. And that produces in us wisdom. Lord, give us wisdom. Teach us to number our days and give us a heart of wisdom. More than that, he asked for compassion. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. He's saying, Lord, don't stay angry with us, but let your, that return language is covenantal faithfulness, return. Let your compassion, your goodness return to us. Don't inflict the curses on us forever. He's praying for compassion. He's also praying for satisfaction. So it's great that God's merciful for us, but merciful to us, but look at verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So now Moses is getting really bold because this is a people that God has been angry with for generations and he's asking, God, don't just have mercy on us, but satisfy us. Fill us with meaning. Fill us with purpose. Give us an experience of your love that puts our hearts at rest. We're wandering. We're going in circles. We're looking for that. Give it to us, Lord. Give us satisfaction. Give us redemption. All of these days that we've been afflicted, comfort us and make us glad. Make us glad for as many days as we've been afflicted. 
the affliction makes the comfort meaningful. When God has afflicted you for a season, when you feel his comfort, his embrace, it adds power that you can't experience any other way. This is redemption. It's understanding the, um, the complete freedom of God to have grace and mercy and to experience that completely undeserving. Moses wants this to translate then into knowledge that is passed on to generations. Verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. And then finally, favor and meaning is how the psalm resolves. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is a beautiful psalm written by Moses. You guys know what happens to Moses? He kind of goes up to God, says, all right, I think we're good. I think we're ready. We can see across the river. There's the promised land. And God's like, yeah, good work. You're not going. You're going to die, and they will have to carry your dead bones into the land. Seems harsh, but actually it is amazing grace that God is that compassionate to Moses because Moses actually ended up leading Israel in rebellion and started grumbling against God. He was kind of an unwilling partner the whole time. He learned a lot and he grew a lot, but he was not a perfect leader. And so this this, um, severe punishment or judgment on God to say, no, you can't experience what you've been working for for 40 years. It's actually a way that God is pointing to something very important for us to see. Because even if we were to take this psalm and apply it to our lives and say, okay, I understand this. I'm looking at death. I'm looking at my sin. I'm looking at... um, at all of the need that I have. So now I'm going to go to God and ask him for all these things too, and that'll help me. Now I know, I know enough so I can, I can do these things. I can actually experience this and do this. We would totally miss this. We would totally miss the point. Moses' prayer was not answered for that generation or the next generation or the next generation. Moses' prayer, this prayer, this psalm, is answered only in Christ who is the perfect version of Moses. Think about Jesus, what he does. Just first of all, he goes directly into the wilderness after being baptized and is there for 40 days being tempted. Never once gives in, even internally, let alone externally. His motives were never twisted. He resisted Satan personally perfectly. What about the dwelling place? What did, what does scripture say about where Jesus lived? He didn't have a home. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He was wandering. He had nothing of this earth. So he 
perfectly understood, the Lord is my dwelling place. The Lord is my home. And then finally, in his confrontation with sin and death, we see Jesus brought to the end of himself, brought to kind of his own moment of looking across the Jordan and saying, Lord, I don't want to go through that river. I don't want to be swept away in that flood. Let that cup pass from me. And when he hears silence from God, confirming that that is the path he must take, he commits himself into the hands of God. And he does that perfectly. And we see this expressed in what this means for us in Hebrews. And the the author to the Hebrews is actually reflecting on this very same uh, experience of Israel in the wilderness and is kind of drawing some conclusions about what it meant that Israel resisted and was stiff-necked. And this is, this is the author's take on it and his application to us, the, the New Testament people of God, people following and trusting Christ. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see, we don't actually make our moments meaningful. We can't make our lives matter. But God has made every moment of our lives matter in Christ. Because, like the author of Hebrews said, he is the eternal Son of God passing through the heavens. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And he identified with us. He put on our nature to redeem it, to recover it, to cut the bounds of time. And of course, we know that Jesus, the resurrected son, defeated death. The other threat to our meaning, to making our lives matter at all. He's conquered death through his resurrection. And so when you know that you have been grafted into the body of Jesus by faith, you belong to his flesh. His death was your death. That's when you died, when Jesus was crucified on the cross. The life that you now live, you live in Christ. It's Christ living in you. God is making every single one of your moments matter. Everything in your life matters. So here is 
the immeasurable freedom of that. You don't have to be afraid that you're not going to matter. You don't have to be afraid that a bad outcome is going to destroy all the progress that you've made. You don't have to um, overachieve or achieve anything. You've received everything by being grafted into the sun. And so here is the reflection for us as you're kind of thinking through like, okay, how do I, how do I go about entering and reestablishing rhythms of my life now? If there is anything that is leading you away from your fellowship, your, um, your richness, your inheritance that's imperishable and unfading, cut it out. Don't entertain it. It could be a good thing. Don't entertain it. It's going to be destroyed. And for everything, every way that you can find to bring and invite Jesus into your everyday life, do it. On vacation, make sure to remember that the Lord is with you. When you go to work or don't go to work and stay home at work, remember that the Lord is with you. When you're with your kids and you're dealing with a temper tantrum, the Lord is with you, and he's making that ridiculous moment of helplessness, <laughs> he's stitching it into the fabric of eternity, and it's going to be part of the eternal kingdom when it comes. And so we can celebrate that, we can rejoice in that, we can hope in that, that we actually have received the gift of having lives that matter and are significant. And we don't have to do that ourselves. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, so much that you, <laughs> that you are Lord from everlasting to everlasting. That you have established the foundations of this earth. You have established time. You have established everything, Lord, to bring about your will and to show off to us how good you are, how perfect you are. And that, Lord, even in our rebellion, you have made provision for us, and that you have not allowed our dysfunction or our rebellion to interrupt your love, but that you have overcome all of it in the person of, and work of your Son and your Spirit being sent to dwell with us. And so, Lord, help us, to, help us to think about our lives now in light of that. Help us to remember that as we're reflecting and planning for what our um, lives are going to look like going forward. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us the wisdom of the cross. Give us the wisdom of the resurrection. And, Lord, give us glad hearts that know that everything that we do is made meaningful in your Son. We thank you so much for that gift, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.